ReachMD XM157 now presents this month's special series, Exploring Heart Health. Each year, more than 200,000 patients do not receive surgical valve replacement due to excessive risk factors, refusal of surgery, and comorbidities. Percutaneous aortic valve replacement, a less invasive option, could provide the life-saving treatment your patient needs. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a ReachMD special series exploring heart health. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Ted Feldman, professor of medicine at Northwestern University Medical School and director of the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratory and Interventional Cardiology Chair at Evanston Northwestern Healthcare. Dr. Feldman is also the co-author of Percutaneous Coronary Intervention Guideline and a past president of the Society of Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions. Welcome, Dr. Feldman. Very good to be with you. Today we are discussing percutaneous aortic valve replacement. Dr. Feldman, we were discussing the technique of percutaneous aortic valve replacement by placing a stent after balloon dilatation and valvuloplasty and then an aortic valve. Could you go into detail a bit more? The aortic valve prosthesis is a stainless steel balloon expandable stent to which porcine pericardial or bovine pericardial tissue leaflets have been sewn. So this device is crimped on a balloon catheter. The balloons are typically about 23 millimeters in diameter. This device is encased in a flex catheter, a catheter that can be flexed to go around the aortic arch. So it's passed through a femoral sheath over a wire, flexed around the arch, and introduced into the valve where it's positioned, and then a balloon is inflated to deploy it in the valve. How do you make certain that it's in the proper position? There are a couple of elements to positioning that are really critical. First of all, the valves are uniformly calcified, which is an excellent landmark from X-ray fluoroscopy. We also have transesophageal echocardiographic monitoring continuously, so we're able to look directly at the valve, the aortic root, and the prosthesis to establish the correct position. And then the other sort of clever part of this procedure is what has been devised to keep the valve from being ejected by the beating heart while it's being positioned. What is that? We, for a while, thought we were going to have to use percutaneous cardiopulmonary bypass or temporary cardiac arrest, but what has finally come to be our standard practice is to put in a simple right ventricular temporary pacing wire and pace the right ventricle at a rate somewhere between 180 and 200 beats per minute. And this basically causes the heart to stop ejecting any meaningful output for just a few seconds while we position the stent and then inflate the balloon to deliver it. Once the stent is in position and the valve is in position, can you move it at all? The current generation of devices, and in addition to the balloon expandable device that we're using here in the United States, there's a, a self-expanding stent that's being used in Europe. Neither of these devices is repositionable. That is, once you deploy them, that's a permanent position, and there's no second chance. Is sometimes there problems with the coronary circulation or carotid circulation when placing these? Well, that's a, a really key question. 
the carotid circulation has not been a problem uh, in terms of the devices interfering with the carotid circulation. Embolization from atheroma in the aorta or some calcific debris from the valve has occurred, and stroke remains one of the limitations of this procedure, typically in the range of 5 or 6%. Coronary obstruction is rarely a problem, and that is because if you remember the anatomy of the aortic root, the sinuses of Valsalva bulge outward from the valve. So the coronaries are kind of out of the way of the stent. Is this a very technically demanding procedure? Well, certainly it is at this point. The equipment, although developing rapidly, is still first-generation equipment. The devices are large. The patients are certainly high risk and generally very ill. So the technical demands are substantial, and uh, the procedures are challenging, although this we uh, expect to change fairly rapidly over the next couple of years as the technology improves. And how long does one of these procedures take? Well, that's also quite remarkable. One of the bigger steps is establishing femoral arterial access because the sheaths needed for these devices are large. Uh, That is 22 or 24 French. But once the sheath is in place, the process of crossing the valve and deploying the stent typically take about half an hour or 45 minutes. If you are just joining us, you are listening to a special series exploring heart health on the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Ted Feldman, director of the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratory and Interventional Cardiology Chair at Evanston Northwestern Healthcare. We are discussing percutaneous aortic valve replacement. Dr. Feldman, what have been the results thus far? The results have been quite stunning. The patients who've had successful valve implantations have had roughly 80% one-year event-free survival. The performance of the valve prostheses themselves have been excellent with no valve-related problems. The patient cohort is old. Uh, The mean age is 85 years. So there has been a 20% one-year mortality entirely from extra cardiac problems such as associated malignancies, pulmonary embolus, arrhythmias, or associated coronary disease. But this is in a population where without therapy, the annual mortality is 30 to 50%. Are there limitations to this technique? Absolutely. This is first-generation technology, and right now the biggest limitation is the size of the arterial introducer sheath. So the arterial sheath currently is either 22 or 24 French, depending on the size of the prosthesis that the patient requires. So this limits patients in terms of the femoral and iliac arterial diameter. Do you ever have problem with going through the femoral artery in terms of clots and debris and emboli coming from atherosclerotic disease of the aortic iliac tree? The bigger problem with the iliac and femoral access is just the the caliber. So the elderly patients tend to have highly calcified, often stenotic vessels, in which case we can't even contemplate placing these large sheaths. Sometimes we'll see someone with good caliber vessels, but in whom the degree of calcification makes the vessels too rigid to pass a sheath. The issue of embolization is really related more to the arch and the upper portion of the aorta where embolization can affect the carotids and cause a stroke.
How long do these patients stay in the hospital? The typical hospital stays about three or four days. And some of that is related to recovering from general anesthesia in these very elderly and sick patients, and some to the recovery from ephemeral arterial access, which has to be repaired surgically. Are these patients all anticoagulated? They're treated with heparin, sort of standard catheterization procedure anticoagulation during the procedure. But then afterward, unless they have an additional indication for Coumadin, such as atrial fibrillation, they're just treated with aspirin and persantine. And how many of these have you done? We're just getting our protocol started here at Evanston Hospital. Nationally, we as a study group just hit the 100th patient treated a couple of weeks ago. And do your results compare to the national results thus far? Well, the national results are all pooled as part of a trial, so I think the experience has been pretty uniform, and it is early enough that, especially in this kind of a population, that we need a multi-center trial, and individual sites results are much less important than the aggregate. So this would be classified at this point as an experimental procedure? Absolutely. This is investigational, and uh, this is an FDA investigational device trial. When we think about abdominal aortic aneurysmectomies, certainly endovascular repair has increasingly been done more and more, and probably the future holds more endovascular repairs than perhaps open repairs on elective aneurysms. Do you expect that the same type of trend will be for aortic valve repair, that in non-high-risk patients that you might do a percutaneous repair? We're clearly headed toward less and less invasive therapy. The biggest questions that we have to answer with the current technology for percutaneous aortic valve replacement center on the durability of the leaflets. And once we begin to establish that these prostheses are as durable as surgically implanted prostheses, I think that'll be the turning point for their extension into younger and more typical risk patients. Well, we've talked about the high-risk category. What about the patient who definitely needs an aortic valve replacement, certainly could tolerate it medically, and says to your doctor, I really would rather not do surgery and I'd like a percutaneous aortic valve replacement. Would you include that patient in your study? Well, those patients can't be included in the study. The trial inclusion and exclusion criteria are very rigorous, and both per FDA and with our own opinion that this is very early technology, the use of these devices is restricted to the group you talked about in your introduction, the the group of patients for whom there are barriers to traditional surgery. Where do you think the greatest progress will be made in percutaneous aortic valve replacement? Well, there are already second-generation devices in development that are repositionable and some that will have a, a lower delivery profile. So those two issues right now are the big hurdles, smaller size in terms of the arterial entry and uh, the ability to deploy them, not like what you get, and redeploy them. What are the complications that you have seen in doing this procedure? The biggest complications are related to the femoral artery access, and about 10% of patients require blood transfusions or surgical repair beyond simply the entry site repair. Stroke is the most devastating complication, and this occurs in 6-8% to of patients. And then the remainder of the complications are uh, remarkably infrequent. And if you had a crystal ball, Dr. Feldman, and could look into things five years in the future, what would you see in percutaneous aortic valve replacement? 
I think it's going to become increasingly common therapy in the next five years in the elderly population. So whereas now it's being utilized in very rigorously controlled, highly selected circumstances, we're going to see a broadening of the application of these devices in the experimental setting over the next five years. I want to thank Dr. Ted Feldman, who has been our guest. We have been discussing percutaneous aortic valve replacement. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to a special series exploring heart health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thank you for listening to this month's special series, Exploring Heart Health, on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.